0: the hunt backcountry podcast today this is episode number 274 not too long ago i got a message from my buddy kyle and kyle was looking to get started into reloading kyle's already a hunter and a shooter uh, and very detail oriented when it comes to his archery setups and he's looking to take the leap and get into reloading for his hunting rifle I knew that Kyle would do great with reloading, uh, and that it was something that he would enjoy. And so I want to make sure that he got started off on the right foot, or at least just me share the recommendations that I have and what I have learned becoming a reloader. And so there's a lot to that question though. There's a lot to recommend and talk about, and I didn't want to answer Kyle's message with just another message. I thought, man, I should probably hop on the phone with Kyle and just chat through some of the things that he should know, or that I would have found helpful as a beginner reloader. And then as I thought about that, I thought, well, shoot, if we're diving on the phone and talking about this, might as well hit record and share that. And so that's what this episode is today. It's much different than our normal episodes, but it's really me having this conversation with Kyle about what he needs to get started reloading for his goals specifically and with a modest budget in mind. So in this episode, we talk mostly about the gear that you need. It's not about the process. We can't go into answering every reloading question, although I'm happy to do more of that in the future. But in this episode specifically, I wanted to talk with Kyle about the gear considerations he should make. Should he start with an all-in-one out-of-the-box reloading kit? Should he skip that kit and invest in creating his own kit? Where should he spend the money? Where can he save money and much more? And so that's what we discuss in this episode today. If you've thought about getting into reloading, or maybe you're new to reloading, I'm sure this will be helpful for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Again, this is one of those topics where there's a ton of opinions, a ton of thoughts, and truly I'm just sharing what I have found works well for me with a modest budget and with my specific goals of creating accurate ammunition for hunting. So that's what we're doing today in this episode. Also, in addition to the episode check out the link in the show description and i wrote a quick article that details some of the specific gear items that i would recommend as well as just kind of a high level categorical checklist of the gear you need to make sure you do have as a new reloader so check that out at the exo blog in the link in the show description hope you guys enjoy this one we'll be back next week with our regular interview format but for now enjoy this conversation with kyle well Kyle welcome uh, welcome back to the show man how the heck are you
1: I'm good Mark thanks for having me back on
0: yeah you bet you were uh we chatted back I had to look it up it was episode 193 and we specifically uh we talked about flying with weapons so be it bows or rifles, just kind of the logistics things guys should consider, need to know about traveling with weapons. Um, You know, and part of that related to guys not even flying, but just like even traveling in a truck. But especially as you get into out-of-state hunts and start flying or going up to Alaska, things like that, the things you need to know. So that's when we had you on the podcast first, and we hit some introduction uh, background in that show for guys who didn't hear it. But give us, uh, you know, the one-minute like super high level on who the heck is Kyle Hansen.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, like Mark said, I'm Kyle Hansen, born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. I'm an outdoor hunting enthusiast in all aspects of it. um, Currently, I work full-time with Outdoors International as a hunting consultant and North American big game specialist. So I really focus on helping my clients plan and assist with the logistics of are alaskan and western united states big game hunts so i mean that's the quick and short of me and what i do and um you know i guess how we got here i was kind of picking your brain mark on some reloading stuff as i've kind of started to get back into rifle shooting and with the natural progression of that i kind of want to start tinkering with reloading so
0: yeah yeah you uh You know, what was interesting to me when you started asking questions is I know you're pretty detail oriented and I've seen like even in the past you take deep dives on like building arrows and being very meticulous about Mm-hmm. Arrow setups and tuning arrows to bows and really taking things to like a precise level. And so it's like knowing your background on that, I can see number one, why you're interested in reloading. And then number mm-hmm. two, that you kind of have like a, I think, a good detail oriented mindset to probably do really well with reloading and dialing in some loads for your rifles.
1: Absolutely. And it's kind of funny that you say that because. One of the reasons that I've refrained from diving into like long range shooting or reloading is I was trying to do myself a favor because I know what I do. <laughs> I just I just dive into things so much. I mean, just when i when I jump into something, I do it with both feet. And so, you know, with that too, I'm trying to take the most realistic approach to reloading that I possibly can and not go so far into the weeds to where I need to dump thousands of dollars into a setup, have the nicest, best of the best gear to do it, and just come up with kind of a, a simple, almost minimalistic approach to reloading, but also efficient, you know, that middle ground somewhere. And, and I, uh, I know that that, very much aligns with your mindset with things and just kind of having a minimalistic, simple, effective approach. And uh, that's why I kind of wanted to pick your brain on it and see what you do.
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, And to tie this in, I mean, we've done uh, podcasts on reloading in the past. um, Back in episode 213 and 221, Uh, I know that I think that was the first two times we talked about reloading and those were um, with folks from RCBS about reloading and at the time like I was newer to reloading I had I've been reloading pistol um, stuff you know straight wall cartridges for god probably 15 years something like that but um, and I had messed around with some centerfire rifle but over in the last year and a half is kind of when I've taken my deep dive um, into reloading for centerfire rifle you know for hunting for precision kind of some long-range stuff and as you said Kyle it's one of those things where you can go deep like you can you can go deep in the rabbit trail both in terms of process uh gear budget like things can get crazy um quick for sure and it's one of those things that there's just a lot of information out there and for me it was always hard to like separate um like what's really helpful right so like as you just said like you want some some level of simplicity without giving up like precision and accuracy i think at one point kyle you mentioned like your goal would be to have a somewhat minimal process while still getting i think you said like you know half moa accuracy like good precise rounds for hunting right
1: absolutely i just want to be able to efficiently make half moa hunting ammo and maybe that's asking a lot but it seems like that's kind of the standard that everyone's trying to reach, and. The next tier beyond that might be like 0.3 0.25 but you know realistically it's just not necessary Yeah, in my opinion you know once you get to a certain level that's fine i mean go hunting practice shoot it
0: right yep <laughs> yeah the difference between you know a load shooting 0.3 or 0.45 is one thing when you're sitting still on the bench, but in all reality, what does that do in a hunting scenario? Like you're the biggest variable of uh, accuracy and precision there. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, let's let's dive into that. I think you know that's a good place to be. That's I, I've never put it that way, but that's kind of something I look for is half MOA accuracy. And I, before we dive into reloading, I guess the only caveat to throw out there is. You know if we're talking about like half moa accuracy like your system needs to be capable of that so you know it obviously is going to depend on the rifle that you're using um and reloading can help you get the most potential out of your rifle um no matter what that rifle is um but at the same time i just want to like throw the the asterisk out there of like you know, maybe maybe some rifles are gonna struggle to get half MOA accuracy. Maybe some shooters are gonna struggle to get half MOA accuracy. Um, you know, things in your system as a whole, be it shooter, optics, rifle, and then the load that you're shooting, like that's all part of the equations of what's happening downrange. But, um, yeah, in terms of things that kicking off, you sent me some questions, Kyle, and then that's kind kind of when I was like, man, let's just hop on a call and kind of informally chat through these questions. And so one of the one uh, one of the big questions is essentially, what is the process I use for reloading precision hunting ammunition? Um, and again, this is in the context of keeping things simple. Um, and really, you know, there's there's kind of two. Two branches here that we'll kind of start to talk about. And number one is are you using brand new brass or are you truly reloading brass that's been fired? So you could be purchasing brand new brass. Um, you could be dealing with brass that's been fired. You know, if you've been shooting factory uh, for quite a while and then you've kept that brass, maybe you're sitting on 100 or 200 cases or something like that. Um, and so that's, you know, there's differences clearly in the process of truly reloading brass that's been fired and then, um, you know, hand-loading virgin brass, brand new brass essentially. So um, the first few things in my process are assuming that I am reloading brass that's been fired. And so if I'm dealing with fired brass, the first thing I'm going to do is deprime that. So, uh, you know, take out the, pr- the primer um, that's been fired. Uh, and then I'm gonna clean the case, and then uh, I'm going to anneal that case. Um, Annealing is uh, one of the things you don't have to do. I didn't do it for quite a while, I just started recently doing it. We can talk more about why you would wanna do that in the future, but those are the first three steps for me um, if I'm dealing with a fired case, is depriming it, cleaning it, and then annealing it. So those first three steps apply to brass that's been fired. And then everything from here on out is gonna be consistent, whether I'm dealing with fired brass that I just deprimed, cleaned and annealed, or whether I'm dealing with brand new brass. And so the rest of the process is to size that brass uh, and I full length size, which we can talk about in a bit more detail. Um, And then I just have what I call case check. So I'm looking for uh, the brass length. Does it need to be trimmed? Uh, If I'm trimming it, do I need to chamfer the edge? Uh, clean primer pockets things like that so I just call that case check like there's kind of a few different things that happen in there maybe and then I'm priming that case so I'm putting a new primer in I am doing my powder charge and then I'm seeding a bullet so again the thing the steps that happen for everything are just size the case check the case prime the case charge it and then seed a bullet and you're ready to fire if you're you know you have the steps before all that where you're priming cleaning and annealing potentially um, for fired brass so that's just super basic like kind of my order of operations if you will um, on reloading and again I know we'll dive deeper Kyle but any immediate like questions on why is it in this order or anything there I mean we're going to dive into the gear and more nitty-gritty on how I do all that but anything that stands out right away
1: no that all makes pretty good sense and I'm sure there's you know micro steps in there that you know we'll touch on more but you know like case looping, um right. checking cases i mean just flat out measuring them where do you measure them from i mean those are all the things that i immediately think of you know like when you're checking a case what measurements are you checking uh what signs are you looking for you know anything like that
0: yeah no perfect yeah i mean um just to touch on those two specifically um you you need to lube the case before you size it. So there's there's spray on lubes, there's waxes, there's different things like that. So you're essentially doing that before the sizing, and especially for full length sizing, which I'm doing, which I would recommend all hunters do, which we can talk about the reasons for that. You know, you're running the entire case essentially up through a die. And if you don't have that lubrication, that case can literally get stuck within a die. And so lubrication just helps that full ink sizing process happen. Um, it kind of lubricates process and then ensures your case doesn't get stuck. Um, yeah, case checking, um, you know, it really depends on how familiar you are with the brass. So if it's virgin brass or if it's brass, you know, that's been once fired. So again, like the scenario where it's you shot factory ammo and you're holding that brass. Generally, you're pretty safe there in terms of true issues with that case, meaning things like that could potentially be dangerous of splits in the case neck or case head separation, like things that truly would cause like this piece of brass, this case to not be safe or usable um, that can happen down the road you know, if you're doing multiple, multiple loadings and now it's like, okay, I'm on the 10th firing of these cases. Maybe you're seeing split necks, for example. Um, but if you're dealing with newer brass, once fired brass from factory ammo, you should be safe. Again, it's always better to play it safe. So especially if you're getting quote unquote once fired brass, but it's not brass you fired, you don't, you don't necessarily know. Like if you bought it from someone or something, like you don't know the history of that brass so essentially i would look at that much closer right to inspect it and make sure that it's good and usable and safe um, yeah we'll t- we'll talk more about measurements and and sizing and all that stuff here in a bit so okay um yeah just as we talked about the process let's kind of dive into gear a little bit you know i know some of your questions are uh you know what's really needed um, and obviously when it whether you're talking presses or dies or case prep or any step in the reloading process, you can spend relatively little or you can spend a fortune. Um, and then there's different options. Um, so this is what kind of we'll dive into is taking that process, understanding the components of gear that are used to achieve that process, and then kind of highlighting you know some price points and things like that. Um, Before we get into gear, one of the first things I would just say is, like, understand the space you're working with. Um, It's easy to get ahead of yourself buying stuff and then going, well, how am I going to set this up or where am I going to set this up? Um, So you're going to need, obviously, some space to use the gear, potentially to store the gear. You're going to need some sort of bench uh, to mount a press, for example, that's stable. So just, you know, keep that uh, in mind ahead of time before you just start going crazy buying stuff, like make sure you have uh, a good place to use that. And that's something personally that I ran into. I was just I just don't have a ton of extra space to store stuff. Um, one of the, the most important things I did, uh, and this sounds like such a commercial, but it's like I'm so in love with this stuff is there's a company called Inline Fabrication, and he makes all different types of basically organization systems and specifically mounts for presses and they have quick change, um, like a quick detach, quick attach system. So essentially what I did is I have one of his flush mounts for my reloading press and it was really easy to install that onto a a really solid desktop that I already had. And instead of me being forced to have like this dedicated space where I have my reloading press, or as we'll talk about in a minute, a few of my reloading presses permanently mounted. I just have this one quick change plate, and I can like install my press, use it, and then go put it in storage or swap uh, between presses or run my press here and then bring out my case trimmer and run it there. So um, I would just, I can't recommend his stuff enough, especially if you're tight on space or just want like a quick solution. He has a ton of different options, but that's all um, from inline fabrication um and he's he makes everything here in the us he's up in the northwest somewhere and yeah just been really happy with his stuff but yeah let's dive into more gear that i think one of the first questions you really face after you figure out okay i'm gonna get it started i got some space i got a bench is making the decision to either purchase or reloading kits or start piecing together things on your own a la carte so you can go buy a kit that contains everything you need. And I kind of say that like in quotes, everything you need to get started reloading. Um, and they do, like they will they will get you started and you can reload rounds with them. So you can go buy a kit from uh, RCBS or Hornady or um, Lee or several different brands that's like, here's a box with everything you need to get started. And you can do that for um, generally like the three to $600 range. So there's some a little bit cheaper, there's some more expensive, but that's kind of where most kits fall is within that ballpark um, for things like a single stage press, um, some sort of powder dispenser, powder measure, uh, a case block, um, really everything you need, the basics you need to get started. They're a good way to go if you're getting your feet wet. Um, like if you think, yeah, I think I wanna reload or I just wanna like check it out, try it out. I think for you, Kyle, and your mindset of like, you you do wanna keep this simple and minimal, but I know you and I know you're gonna want like some level of like precision that if you were to purchase a kit, you'll end up upgrading a fair amount of components from that kit so maybe it's better for like someone like you in the long run to like kind of figure out what you really want and need um even if that's a little bit more of an investment up front and kind of piece together um individual components right and that could even mean you know buying different brands of things like, so maybe you get an rcbs press and another brand of powder scale or powder dispenser for example absolutely um, have you looked at kits much or considered anything there
1: Yeah, and exactly like you said, I could see myself outgrowing it very fast, you know, just wanting the next level up, you know, like if I was um, measuring powder out on a beam scale, I know that within one round of creating a batch of brass, I'm going to want an electronic scale, something more efficient. Obviously a beam scale is very effective, but it's very slow. And so, you know, just the efficiency aspect, you know, I don't mind spending a little bit more here and there, but, you know, like I said, I'm kind of trying to find that middle ground, if you will, mm-hmm. and try to find something that I won't outgrow too quick. And so like looking at scales, yeah, I'm, I'm automatically sold on paying a little bit more for something more automated for a scale to speed the process, but needs to still be precise. Um, yeah. As far as presses go, you know, that, Mid range price point of anything from like 250, 350, I mean, sub four or 500 bucks. I mean, all that I can justify pretty easily, you know, if it's something that's going to be better in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, Something I've thought of too is, you know, single stage versus maybe a turret press, something that's going to be a little more efficient there. But then you're also sacrificing a little bit of precision, you know, not using a single stage. Um, And then, you know, looking at other components like, oh, say, maybe dies even you know is it worth paying a little bit more up front to have more precision is it going to be more efficient repeatable you Mm -hmm. know those are all areas where i can easily justify right up front spending just a little bit more so it's going to benefit me more in the long run
0: perfect yeah we'll we'll dive into all that um but basically we're like what you said aligns with the summary of what i had at the end of all this gear talk is my personal summary and again that's one thing about reloading i meant to say up front and didn't Everyone has different thoughts. Everyone has a different process. Like there's guys who are gonna hear what I say and be like, well, I do it this way. Literally everyone does their thing with reloading. I don't, like I have a very good friend who's more into reloading than I do and we do things differently. Like everybody has their own process, their own preferences, their own gear, their own budget, whatever. But I would echo what you said. Most guys who are semi-remotely serious will outgrow a kit fast. And Absolutely. my big takeaway is get a decent press, good dyes, a good powder. Th- I said powder thrower. What I mean by that is an all-in-one powder dispenser slash scale and then basics and everything else. So like press, go decent, get good dyes, a good powder system, and then start with basics and everything else. And if you want to upgrade later, those basics, you can. So like that's, For me, that was the big takeaway um, on what's really going back to simplicity and budget. And what's most important is you don't got to go crazy on a press, but I would invest in good dies, a good powder thrower and basics and everything else. So let's dive into that. Um, Makes sense. Presses. Yes. um, All different types, right? So there's single stage, there's turrets, um, there's like truly like you can get crazy with Dylan's and Foley um, automated type stuff for hunting for precision stuff when you're not doing crazy volume a single stage is fine i i have a turret press um that's what you know going back to 10 15 years ago i've owned this thing for doing pistol rounds things like that i don't mind a single stage at all for rifle rounds and actually prefer it and part of the reason for that is um you know when i When you think of reloading, you might think, and you think of that process I talked about earlier where it's like, okay, here's all these steps. So I'm, I'm sizing a case and I'm doing case check and then I'm priming, I'm charging, I'm seating, like that's all sequential, but you don't have to do that all at once. And so for me, I I don't have a ton of time to sit down and reload for two hours. And so I might quite literally go anneal cases one night for 20 minutes. I might size them two days later. I might prime them a week later. Like this whole process, that, that, that sequence of events I talked about earlier, doesn't have to happen one after the other. And so even thinking of like a single stage press, I might be full length sizing, which is the first time I'm using the die. And then theoretically, the next time I use a die is to seat a bullet. And So in a turret, that can happen like boom, boom, like 1K sized, seated. Um, obviously have your prime or your powder charge between there, but with a single stage press, because I'm not always doing that sequentially, it's, I I just don't, for most guys, like a turret, you don't need it. Single stage is fine. Um, things like the RCBS rock chucker been around literally for decades, um, has a great reputation. I have one, use it, love it. You can get one for like 215 bucks. Um, great press, great single stage press. Um, they have a newer version, kind of an updated, improved rock chucker, a little bit more compact called the Rebel. It's slightly more. I think it's like 245. Um, it's a good press. Um, those are both from RCBS. You know, other brands out there, Hornady, uh, Lee, Redding, Lyman, Forrester. There's real niche stuff like Area 419, but you're talking a lot of money. So I think you're exactly right, Kyle. You can spend two to three maybe 350 bucks on a press um and really have what you need and i would i wouldn't be afraid of something basic and single stage on the press by any means all oh, right on that makes perfect sense i
1: mean that exactly what you just said you know you chip away at it like I've got a batch of arrows sitting on my counter right now. I need fletched up and I started them three weeks ago. I just do one stage at a time. (laughs) as I have time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Busy lives, you know, with businesses and family and everything else, just, you know, 20 minutes here, half hour there.
0: So, so yeah, on, on presses, you can totally do that. One thing unique, um, where I would depart from that and what I personally do, and this is because I have the convenience, um, I, I kind of really like having a separate press for depriming, which is like a super simple part of the process. It's the very first thing you do, right? You take a case and you deprime it, and you can get a universal decapping die, which knocks out that used primer. Um, and it'll literally apply to all cases. So, like, you know, I'm currently reloading for four different cartridges right now, right? So, you got like mm-hmm. 6.5 Creedmoor, 30-out-6, seven Psalm. I have. Of one single decapping die that can deprime all those and what I do what I personally do Is use my old turret press I talked about which I was using for pistol rounds and I deprime on that by itself The the reason for that and again, this is not a must But the reason for that is depriming is like a very dirty process when you're kicking out the primer you know, sometimes junk's falling out of the case like unspent powder debris carbon the cases themselves haven't been cleaned yet, so they're dirty. So depriming is, you know, it's just kind of a dirty first step in the process. And if you can keep that gunk and junk away from your primary press, it's nice. I haven't already have that old turret press, so that I just basically use that as my depriming press. Even if you don't, though, you can buy a dirt cheap single stage press with a universe, uh, not with, meaning it comes with, but you could buy the cheap single stage press and a universal decapping die for like 60 bucks. So, if you spend like, say, 215 $220, 230 whatever, on your your primary single stage press, and you can spend another 60 bucks for like a really cheap uh, Lee, I forget what it's called, breech lock, maybe. It's like mm-hmm. a dirt cheap press and a universal decapping die for like 60 bucks. Like, you could have a two press set up for still under 300 bucks. So, not a must. It's something that, I kind of had the convenience of and now that I do it I really stinking like it so something to consider there
1: yeah definitely that makes sense then are you doing that with that inline fabrication mount is that something you're just kind of swapping out or do you have that like in the garage in a separate area entirely
0: yeah exactly so that's kind of the beauty of that mount so I have one mount on my bench and then the presses each have like call it the male end um that goes into the female the mount that's on my bench for lack of better terms and so yeah i can swap between my depriming press and my sizing press like boom quick um and then personally i have everything in my uh, office slash man cave area um in uh where i work from and i just i built my one wall has um like a track system that's meant for garages, like from Lowe's or Home Depot with hooks and stuff. And so I literally just have my presses hanging on the wall from hooks. Um, and then I could just swap them in um, and then use them as I need them and put them away. And they're out of the way when I don't need them. So that's, yeah, that kind of gets back to part of the beauty of that inline fabrication system. Oh,
1: I love that. I think that's probably something I'm going to look up as soon as we get off this podcast. Cause that sounds perfect for what I need in my house. Cause I, my office is very much like yours. It sounds like it's my, My little tiny extra bedroom with uh, everything in it, which is also where the reloading station is going to go right next to my desk and my bow press and bow hanger on the wall. And it's just a Swiss army knife of a room. And that's how I have to do it. Just maximizing my space.
0: Yeah, my whole, like, professional and outdoor life is in a, you know, I don't know what size this room is, 12 by 12 room, that it's like, I have to manage all of my stuff in here, and so organization's been key for me, for sure. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, 12. I have, like, some big nice. <laughs> stuff outside, but, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure.
0: Um, yeah, so that's, that's, um, that's kind of covering presses. I mean, single stage go, you know, with, a uh, something, Simple, reliable. You don't need to go crazy. Um, okay. I have the luxury of having a third press that I use for seating, which is the RCBS Summit. Um, not required. It has its own like little differences and advantages. But for most guys starting out, I'd get a single-stage press and then potentially, like I mentioned, that super dirt-cheap Lee press with a decapping die and just mm-hmm. run with that, and you'll probably be more than happy. Um okay. so yeah, presses are pretty easy there. Perfect. Um so, dies, yeah, this is, and this is something too, like when we talk about dies, keep in mind that even if you were to buy a kit, you still have to buy dies, right? So, dies are cartridge specific. So, you, you go buy a RCBS kit that has quote unquote everything you need. It doesn't have dies because they don't know what cartridge you're reloading for. Um, so, dies are its own thing. You'll have to buy dies no matter what. Um, I already mentioned that universal decapping die, literally for like 20 bucks, you can buy that. I just, especially if you're doing multiple cartridges, um, you know, decapping it and cleaning it and doing like getting the case nice before you really run it through your main die is just nice. So that decapping die for 20 bucks literally works on everything. To me, it's a no brainer. Um, the other die that I use, and this is before we get into dies really needed to actually create loaded rounds is i use the rcbs bullet puller die um there's different ways to pull bullets and for guys who are super new pulling a bullet literally means you have a loaded cartridge that's ready to fire and you're not going to fire it so you want to like uh take it apart essentially you can reuse the bullet you can reuse the powder you can reuse the case so instead of just shooting an unsafe case or losing the powder and the bullets and the, uh, the cartridge, you can pull the bullet out, um, and then reuse those components. There's different types of bullet pullers. There's like inertia pullers. There's these, you know, which are like hammer looking pullers. Um, the RCBS bullet puller die has callets, um, that are not cartridge, but caliber specific. So if you have like a, a 30 cal and a six, you have two separate callets that fit the bullet of that uh, caliber and pull it for you it's 25 bucks for the die and then each uh, caliber specific um, insert don't recall how much they are but in in the end i think it's a good investment too um especially being newer like if you're and this is jumping ahead but if you are loading up a ladder of doing test charges right and so you're you're going higher and higher in your powder charge and you find okay i'm starting to see pressure signs here but I had three more cartridges loaded with higher pressure or higher charge weights that I know I don't want to shoot that are potentially unsafe, you want to be able to pull apart those three cartridges that were higher pressure, higher powder charge, and reuse them. So you'll end up using a bullet puller. I really like the RCBS die version versus like the inertia or hammer style puller.
1: Likewise, I like the way that sounds way better than, you know, beating it out with a hammer. I've seen those before, and that looks kind of (laughs) messy.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, super easy on that one, too, kind of like I would say utility dies, Um, but the primary dies, so um, what the, and again, there's, I say primary like purposely, there's different types and variations, and you can look and you'll see that some die sets have three or four dies, but... What's most common is to have two primary dies. One is some sort of sizing die, and the other one some sort of seating die. So again, sizing is sizing the case, and seating is seating the bullet. Those are the two primary dies. Mm-hmm. When it comes to sizing, um, you'll see things like neck sizing versus full length sizing. As I mentioned before, I recommend everyone for hunting does full length sizing. Um, so just to like touch briefly, you know, when a, when a cartridge is fired, that brass expands and basically forms itself to your chamber a bit. So you have the size of the brass before it's fired, and then you have the size of the brass after it's fired, how much it grows, how much it changes really depends on the chamber of your rifle you can often only resize the neck just in terms of reseeding a bullet. So what you'll find is if you take a a a brass case that's been fired and say it was for seven rim Mac and you go to put, you know, a new seven millimeter bullet in it, the neck, the part that holds the bullet has been expanded. And so the bullet can like slide in and out, it's loose. And so at the bare minimum, you have to resize the neck, you have to make it tighter so that the bullet can be seated in the neck and the neck has enough tension, excuse me, to hold the bullet in place. So to bare minimum you have to neck size. When it comes to full length sizing, you're sizing the neck, which is the topmost part of the case, and working your way down. So the shoulder and then even the body of the case. The reason that's important for hunting, because you'll see like some competition, benchrest, and other guys only neck sizing. But for hunting, you can often chamber around in ideal circumstances that hasn't been full length sized. So again, this this brass is like expanded to your chamber and your firearm specifically, and it you know it expands to the chamber, but it kind of shrinks back a little bit, and so there's usually enough margin where when it's not full length sized, it can still rechamber, and at least in a perfect scenario. But it's there's not much like to work with there. There's not much space. And so what happens for hunting is you go to load around and you either have some dirt or debris in your chamber, or you have some moisture, or you have something on the brass itself. And be, if you don't full length size, that tolerance is so tight that any sort of debris could theoretically not allow you to chamber around. Right? So we want a full length size. What that means is yes, we're neck sizing to hold the bullet. We're sizing the shoulder. We're pushing that back just a little bit. You'll hear guys talk about shoulder bump, um, kind of to do with head space. I don't wanna get lost in the weeds on this. And then you're also ensuring that the primary wall of the case is full length sized. So again, I hope I didn't lose people. Just long story short, if you're hunting full length size, period. Um, most, yeah, I don't wanna say most dies, but it's so, so common to have full length sizing dies. A couple differences you'll see within full-length sizing dies are pretty much what's called like a standard die, and then you'll start to see things like bushing dies, for example. I do recommend, if you can, to go with a bushing die. A bushing die, um, going again to talk about neck again, a bushing die sizes the neck uh, more precisely and gives you some options, and so you can by bushings that size the neck a different amount like pretty unique variations like down to the thousandths of an inch. The reason that could be important is not all brass is the same. Some brass is thicker than others um you know thicker in the neck things like that and a bushing die just gives you more control over neck tension. So again the amount of tension holding the bullet in the neck um This is where we can really get lost in the weeds, but I will say that from everything I've experienced as well as information from people I trust a ton, that neck tension is actually very important and consistency in neck tension is very important. So if you can get a full length sizing die, that's a bushing die for neck tension. It's not a must, but it, it can be helpful for sure. Especially if, again, we're we're chasing kind of that half away group. Like, controlling neck tension can be really helpful to kind of fine-tune things. There's other ways to control neck tension um, with, like, an expander mandrel. Um, there's other options. That's getting in the weeds. I don't want to lose people, but that my recommendation. Full-length sizing with a bushing die. Any questions there, Kyle?
1: No, that makes perfect sense. That's kind of from my own research, what I've gathered as well, that not only a full length sizing die, but also a neck bushing style die that seems to make the most sense.
0: So that's the first primary die, is sizing again full length uh, sizing with the bushing. My recommendation. The second die is the seating die. Um, there's again all different variations here. the The one thing I'd say specifically is get a seating die with a micrometer. All that means is you have on the seating die a precise, repeatable um, way to change seating depth of the bullet. So how far is the bullet being seated in the case? And with micrometer, you can change that by the thousandths of an inch, and they all have like hash marks. So you can reference like, okay, here's my setting. I wanna, you know, say I seat this bullet and I know that I wanna seat it, you know, eight thousandths deeper. Like most of those dies you literally can just count and like on the hash marks go, to eight and seed it that much deeper. So having that reference point and like fine level of control is important. Um, the reason that that becomes important and we can talk about this later, is for some bullets, changing your seeding depth um, can have a dramatic impact on accuracy. So we want to be able to precisely control seeding depth um, and the best way to do that is with a seating die with a micrometer So yeah, I mean, that's it. You can, um, as an example, I have RCBS Matchmaster dies. They come in a set of a full length sizing die with the neck bushing um, option um, and the seating die with micrometer. Those are in about 150, 160 for the pair, for the set in there. I also have Hornady match grade dies, very similar. Um, Again, full length sizing with bushing, also a seating die with micrometer that's that's like 90 bucks so a bit cheaper um both have been good the rcbs genuinely is nicer you're obviously paying almost twice the price for it it has other features like um, has a bullet seating window so instead of you know you you have your case size have it filled with powder you put it in your press instead of like setting the bullet on top of the case and it's kind of like wobbly and sitting crooked on the RCBS die, you can actually put the bullet in the die itself, and as the die comes down onto the case, it's like aligning it perfectly and seating it. So it's it's not a must, but it's kind of kind of pretty nice when you have it. So nice. Uh, ton of dies out there: RCBS, Hornady, uh, Forster, Lyman, Redding. Um, there's there's countless others. You can spend. Like a primary, what I call a primary die set or a two die set of a sizing and a cedar, you could literally get the very, very basics for 40 bucks, or you could spend like 200 plus easy on dies. Um, Again, the RCBS Matchmaster is going to be about 150, 160. Hornady match grade about 90 or so. And I've used both of those uh, with good results. Any other questions there, Kyle?
1: No, that was... uh... Item I was kind of curious about too, because I've looked at the micrometer dies and I've seen RCBS, Hornady, Forster, Witten. I mean, it's like you see a a huge price difference all the way across. And like anything, you start diving into the weeds and you start looking at reviews and. You know, you could look at like a Witten or a Hornady die that looks just like an RCBS. And, you know, one guy says it's the best thing he's ever tried. And then another guy says, yeah, I didn't think it was as good as this. And (laughs) I think at the end of the day, just go with a good name brand that has the features that you want, like that micrometer and, uh, you know, just use it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you can get into the weeds. You can get into, I mean, we didn't even talk about like on seating die, you can change seating stems to match your bullet profile. You can have custom made seating stems. You could have custom made full length sizing dies that match your specific chamber. Like, there's a lot of options out here. I'm skipping over. Again, I'm, I'm like circling back to okay, let's get some really nice, loaded, accurate, precise uh ammunition without like getting crazy in the weeds, both from a keeping simplicity and budget in mind. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of skipping over. <laughs>
1: For sure. Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, like the the difference from the level that we're talking about to that next level, there's a huge I mean, just a knowledge gap there for what little you gain by going to that next level above that. It just seems like it's not too important to worry about that to begin with. You know, more importantly, like understand the equipment you are using, the style of equipment, and just that basic foundation of knowledge and what you're trying to achieve and creating repeatable ammo, you know? Yep,
0: yep, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so getting back to like budget, right? We've talked so far Mm -hmm. about presses. You can spend... Two to 300 bucks and be good enough, like well off for sure. Like that you're not even going to outgrow super fast dies. I wouldn't buy a $40 die set. I'd probably spend a hundred to 150 bucks on a die set, right? Cause that $40 die set, like your generic call it like RCBS or pick any of the other like Lee, you can get a full length sizer and a seating die for 40 bucks. They're not going to be bushing dies. They're not going to have the micrometer, like those few key things I talked about. So to me, it's worth like, all right, don't spend 40, spend 100 or spend 150, but you also don't have to spend like 250. Um, cool. So, priming. So, we've, uh, yeah, we've talked about sizing cases with our press. We're good to go there. Um, we didn't yet talk about cleaning, um, but we'll get there. Kind of, I put everything case, quote unquote, case prep in one area. Let's talk about priming a little bit. So, to seat a new primer, um, Again, another area where there's a ton of options, uh, there's hand primers. So quite literally something you hold in your hand and you squeeze it and it feeds the primer up into the case and like pushes it up into the primer pocket. It takes a little bit of force, um, kind of can work your hand out a little bit. It's not crazy difficult, but if you're doing like a hundred in a row, like you can maybe start to feel it. Um, hand priming tools, they are probably the most common and also the most affordable. Um, there's bench mounted like so you you have a fixture essentially almost like a press basically like you have a, a lever and it's it's feeding and seeding primers um, you can get a hand primer and from like 50 to 150 bucks um, you could use like a, a yeah hand primer for 50 to 150 bucks you can use like a bench mounted or like almost like I said, that uh, press style um, priming system for a hundred to literally like $600. So it's like mind boggling to me that I mean, I'm not like knocking people. Like it's a very precise product, but to spend for me to spend $600, then all I'm doing is sitting primers is like, that's out of this world. I don't need that. Um, I just use a hand priming tool, I have the RCBS one. There's a bunch of others, Lee and Lyman and what have you. Um, the I think hand priming's fine. Again, we're not talking crazy high volume, right? So you're not sitting there and priming a thousand cases a night. Um, when it comes to hand priming, some of them are um, tray fed, so you basically have all these primers in a tray and they drop from the tray and into your priming mechanism. That's pretty convenient. Some of them are single fed. Um, some of the more actually higher higher end, um, like precise hand primers are actually single fed. Um, there's different tube style feeding. So in addition to like how you're priming the case, like you can look at how the primers are either fed, uh, whether that's manually or by a tube or by a tray into the priming device. Um, the, hand, the RCBS hand priming tool, I don't love it. I've been tempted to like buy something else, but be honest with you, it works. And if you're just starting, it gets the job done. It's not gonna make a dramatic difference in accuracy um, that's notable, noticeable to your average person. Again, like going back to my big idea of get a decent press, good dyes a good powder system and basics and everything else. For me, priming falls into get a basic, you know, start with fifty bucks or sixty bucks and if you want to upgrade later, do it.
1: Absolutely. takes up less room too
0: (laughs) yeah for sure yeah for sure so yeah everything i put case prep in like one giant category touch on the first one is case cleaning so this is its own step as we talked about prior in the process i'm gonna deprime a case and i'm gonna clean that case so before i look at resizing the case or really building off of this new case i want to make sure it's clean um That's somewhat inside and out. Again, an area where guys have all different kinds of thoughts, processes. Some guys don't clean at all. Some guys go crazy OCD. Um, When it comes to place cleaning, you have like at a a very high level, you have three options. You have a dry media tumbler, a wet media tumbler, um, and kind of ultrasonic cleaning is kind of its own third category. Um, dry tumbling is what's most call it traditional. Um, it's kind of, you know, I don't want to say old school, but it's just been around longer guys use like Walnut media or corn cob media in what's called a vibratory tumbler. So you essentially have this big bowl. It's filled with this media. It vibrates like very, uh, at a very fine level. And that vibration, um, causes that media to basically, you know, rub against the case inside and out and knock off carbon and dirt and what have you. Um, wet tumbling is more of a drum that rotates most of the time it guys are using most of the time guys are using like stainless steel pens. So again, that's the media to like knock against the case, knock stuff off. And then with wet tumbling, you typically have some sort of like additive. Um, so guys will either buy a cleaning solution or make a cleaning solution, um, for that wet media guys also do that with dry tumbling i skipped over that some guys use like uh, new finish car polish there's dry tumbling specific a lot of those are eh, they might help with cleaning what they're really doing is kind of polishing like they're making the case prettier somewhat cleaner but mostly prettier um so there are additives um, in terms of cleaners and solutions and what have you ultrasonic cleaning is kind of its own category ultrasonic cleaners are not specific to reloading um mostly they've been used for like cleaning jewelry and things like that. A lot of guys do use them for guns, whether it's reloading or literally taking an entire pistol slide and putting, putting that in an ultrasonic cleaner. Um, so that's kind of its own little third category that you'll see you guys talk about. It, this is an area where I would say, pick your preference. Like there's there's certain attributes about like say wet tumbling where it does better at cleaning the insides of cases. Um, and things like primer pockets than dry tumbling might. To me, I avoided it because it's a little bit more of an investment and it it's causes a little bit more work. So if you think about it, the fact that you're wet tumbling, you have to separate the cases from the water, you have to separate the cases from the media, so the stainless steel cases, And then because your cases were wet, you now have to dry them. So guys, that wet tumble might put them in a dehydrator. They might put them in the oven. Some guys do just like spread them out, let them air dry. But, you know, that whole drying process is another step with um, wet tumbling. With dry tumbling, you still have to separate the media from the case. But you don't have to have that additional step of um, drying that case out, if that makes sense. So, yeah, budget, whatever you want to do there, preference, do it cases to me just need to be relatively clean not crazy perfect um i have the hornady m1 case tumbler i think the whole kit like with media and the case or the media separator and everything was like 75 bucks so again that falls to me in the category of basics and everything else perfect um all right so trimming so we talked before kyle you were asking about like uh, you know case dimensions right so after you full length size a case, yeah, or if that case has been fired, and then full length size, brass is pretty malleable. It can grow, it can shrink. That's why we can that's why it expands when it's shot, that's why you can resize it back down. The working of the case um, that's growing and shrinking can cause the case to elongate, so it quite literally becomes longer. Um, and you want to ensure number one that the case isn't too long to you know, chamber. So the neck of the case needs to fit the chamber of your rifle. Um, And then also consistency, accuracy, perspective. We wanna keep the case necks trimmed as needed. So you want to be able to trim the the overall case length, the actual brass. Again, manual trimmers are out there, powered trimmers are out there. One thing with trimming is you don't always have to do it. Um, Again, this goes back to how much this brass has been fired. It could somewhat go back to your chamber. How much is it growing and then how much are you resizing it? Um, And it honestly is a factor of case quality. Um, Things like different case thicknesses, um, You know, a thinner case may uh, be worked uh, more, it may be softer, it may tend to grow more and need to be trimmed more often. Case trimming is something some guys do every single time they load a case. It's something I only do and I have to. So what I do personally, is, you know, say I just cleaned uh, and sized 50 cases. So before I wanna um, prime them or drop powder, or really reload them, I'm kinda like midway in the process, I wanna do some case checks. So I'm gonna check the length of that case and make sure that it doesn't exceed um, SAMI spec. So SAMI will quite literally say if you're shooting, um, again, seven rim mag to pick one off the top of my head. It should not exceed this length. Um, if I'm not exceeding SAMI length and if I'm spot-checking cases and they're all relatively consistent to one another, I won't trim them. If I begin to approach or exceed the recommended trim length, I'll trim them. If I'm seeing wild variations in, you know, I'm spot checking 50 cases and like this one's way longer than that one. And I'm talking like you have to get into more than thousandths of an inch um, for sure. I will trim them for consistency's sake. I don't do a ton of trimming. It's just not like I mostly use decent brass. I don't know if it's just my chambers, but I just don't have to trim very often. So again, this falls into me, basics and everything else. I have the RCBS trim pro, which is a manual like crank style trimmer. Um, easy to adjust um, for different case sizes, case heads, um, pretty simple to set up. Again, it's just not something I would invest a ton of money in because you might not have to do it a ton. Um, There's like super fancy all-in-one, it'll like trim a case, chamfer it, deburr it, and some guys will run every case through that every time. Again, simplicity's sake, I don't, I don't need to. Um, Also in case prep, you'll see different tools. Some of these are hand tools. Some of these are like, they have case prep centers actually own one, um, but just different uh, different case tools, things like we talked about before, trimming a case. What you want to then do is chamfer that case. If you do trim it, chamfering it, you're putting basically an angle on that case and uh, kind of like cleaning up that trimmed edge um, it is good to do when you trim. But again, if I'm not trimming, I'm not always chamfering or deburring that case. Um, there's things like primer pocket cleaners, primer pocket uniformers. There's all different case prep steps. This is where a lot of guys vary wildly in their process is how they treat cases. So um, some guys go just crazy OCD and some guys keep it simple. I'm probably in between. Like if I'm trimming, then yes, I'll chamfer burr. But a lot of times I'm not doing that because I'm not trimming. So again, I'd follow this in the basics. I did pick up uh, an RCBS Brass Boss, which is an all-in-one like powered unit. So it has like, you can chamfer it, you can burr it, you can run a brush through the case neck, you can do all these different things kind of like in a one-stop shop. And it it is super nice if I'm truly processing like a hundred cases and doing all those steps, it's great. But when you're starting I wouldn't be be afraid to just pick up a simple hand, hand tool, right? Like probably, I don't know, eight bucks, you can buy a, a hand chamfer tool. Okay. Yeah. The only thing left for I call like case prep or case care, and again, I'm not going sequential in the order of the process. I'm just throwing all case prep, case care in a category, is annealing. Um, we can, probably will at some point do a whole podcast on annealing. You don't have to anneal. Um, Don't feel like you have to. I think there's benefits to it for many reasons. Um, Annealing the case uh, can increase longevity of the case and it can increase consistency of that case as you're working it um, and help you keep things like consistent neck tension, um, which help you keep Um, and we can talk about this later, but like, it'll help you keep down standard deviation and extreme spread. So like metrics of your performance essentially. So annealing the the short version here is when we're working brass. So when we're firing it and it's expanding and then we're sizing it and we're shrinking it, you know, this, this brass is growing and shrinking and growing and shrinking. And the more it does that, it basically becomes hardened, right? It's like at a, a molecular level, things are just, they're, they're getting harder. And so going back to what you mentioned prior, Kyle, about like case neck splits, right? It's splitting because it's being worked so much. It's, it's grown and then shrunk and grown and shrunk and it's worked and it's hardened and now it's cracking or it's splitting. Annealing is basically the process of like layman's terms, heating the brass up. And when it heats up, it kind of like, again, I'm not trying to be scientific, but very layman's term, like it redistributes molecules. It keeps things soft. It keeps the structure of the brass, like at a very fine level, workable. Um, So again, that can extend case life. It can give you consistency um, with what's called like spring back, um, help you keep neck tension, all that. Annealing, you can quite literally, um, I'll just throw stuff out there. You you can go look it up, Kyle, and listeners can look it up. You can anneal um, with a simple torch and like a cordless drill. Or you can buy an annealing unit. Um, if you buy an annealing unit, you're gonna spend like two hundred and fifty dollars or more. Um, you know, there's things like the Anneal Ease or the EP Integrations annealer. That's the one I have. Is the EP Integrations annealer? They both run in that I think two fifty to two seventy five ballpark. Um, You can bump up. There's one called Mike's Reloading Bench. Um, It's an annealer. There's one called Bench Source. Those are in the like 450 to 550 range. You can go into an induction annealer. So instead of using a flame, it's just basically a whole different process of heating that case. Most popular one there is called the Amp Annealer. It's literally like 1200 bucks or more. Um, So again, you can use a hand drill or you can spend like twelve to fourteen hundred dollars and anywhere in between on annealing or you can just not do it right (laughs) um yeah i would if you're starting i would not worry about it if you are wanting precision and consistency and accuracy and prolonged case life i would say that kyle like again knowing your personality you'll probably end up annealing um and you can probably do that like I got mine for two fifty, and I'm super happy with it. But I didn't always have it, so um, for sure, yeah, again,
1: yeah, and something to add to that too. There's a lot of places out there that have annealing service, and so if a guy didn't want to pay for an annealer but wanted to get their brass annealed, you can do that for pennies per case. I've seen those services out there, and that's kind of an intriguing option too. I mean, just one less item that you have to buy, and maybe just you know every so often every other shot or third shot maybe even just send your brass off to get annealed
0: yep so yeah that might be a cool option too that's a great point the i was leaning that direction when i wanted to have my cases annealed but didn't yet buy an annealer and the main reason i didn't is just because going back to like my timing i'm often like reloading in bits and pieces like when i can um and i didn't want to like Send brass off and it'd be gone for like 10 or 14 days when it's like, oh crap, I could have gotten something done in that time, right? Um, so to me, it was like, yeah, let me just spend the 250 bucks and be able Mm -hmm. to do it in 20 minutes whenever I want. Um, absolutely, but yeah, it's annealing its own separate topic on when to anneal, how to anneal, how much to anneal. Um, yeah, we can talk more about that at another time. Again, in the interest of keeping things simple, we'll just hit the high level. Um, Cool. So yeah, the, the next one, and again, this is not necessarily in order, but is powder scale um, and powder dispensing or case charging. So again, going back to my big summary, a decent press, good dies, a good powder system and basics and everything else. This is an area like where for you, Kyle, I'd say don't get a kit because it's going to drive you nuts to have a beam scale like you mentioned, <laughs> and you're going to want some sort of all-in system. They are accurate and fast they're going to save you a ton of time um and it's just one of the places where if you can at all make it happen in your budget i would do it i would do it up front um if you can so um again an area where you can spend a few hundred bucks or you can spend like 1500 bucks i mean it's it's all over the place but the one that i have is the rcbs charge master light Um, so there's the charge master and the charge master light, um, it, the charge master lights about $300 basically has a hopper for your powder. Um, and then it's an all in one unit. So it's digital. You input like, okay, I want a charge of, you know, 42.8 grains of powder. And it's dispensing that from the hopper as it's dispensing it, it's weighing it it's verifying that weight. Uh, It's all dropped into a little pan and then you just dump that straight in your case when you have 42.8 grains. Um, And then you can set it up to where it's on like automatic mode. So every time you, you pick up the powder tray and you dump a charge and then you put it back on and the unit reads, okay, I'm at zero, I'm empty, I'm ready to go again. It just starts throwing another powder charge, which is great when you're not changing your powder charge or you're not building like some sort of test. You're just yeah, I want 20 rounds or 50 rounds of this. Like, it's super quick. Um, yeah. So in the end, I think um, no matter who you go with, there's different options out there. Um, but this is an area where I'd say instead of, you know, getting a manual dispenser and a beam scale or even a manual dispenser and a little pocket digital scale, like if you're on the budget, that's great. That works. Go for it. For most guys who are going to stick with reloading for any amount of time, you're going to probably want and end up with an all-in-one unit. So it's the area where I'd say if you can, invest in it up front. Um, yeah, that's simple, man. Uh, the only thing on powder is you also need a powder funnel. So uh, something to literally funnel the powder into the case so you're not trying to pour it in the tiny little case neck. A lot of the kits come with a basic powder funnel that's universal. It has interchangeable heads to fit, you know, a 30 cal versus a 6.5, for example, um, they're good. Some of the plastic ones, um, you know, they can have issues with like static. So like some kernels will, kernels of powder will kind of hang onto the walls and you got to tap it. Um, one of the cheaper but nice ones I've found is from Saturn. Um, it's a aluminum funnel with a brass head. It sits on the case, nice and stable. It doesn't have any static issues. They're caliber specific, so you would need like one for 30 cal versus one for 6.5, but you can find it for like 12 bucks um, and they're nice. But it's funny because powder funnels are, you can get like a nice billet one for 120 bucks, like a kit. Like you can spend a ton of money just on a funnel, um, but you can also buy one for $6. So again, it can be basic. <laughs> oh, I like it. Let's go yeah. with $6. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Save money um, for the scale. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, just a few other like miscellaneous tools. You're going to want some sort of callipers, right? It's like precise um, ways to measure cases, to measure overall case length. Um, there's analog, you know, dial style. There's digital callipers. These don't have to be reloading specific. You don't have to buy, you know, an RCBS brand one. You can probably go on Amazon and buy some generic where they're probably all made in the same factory anyway and just branded. Um, but digital callipers are nice. To go along with your calipers, uh, Hornady makes a, um, oh man, I just blanked a headspace comparator kit. So this is a way, and it this is basically like little attachments that go on your calipers to measure, uh, headspace. I recommend these for sure. The reason they're really handy is going back to, um, Our full length sizing, Kyle, and we were talking about we're not just sizing the neck, but we're sizing the rest of the case and especially the shoulder. And we want to bump the shoulder back. We want to bump the shoulder back, but we don't want to go overboard. So we don't want to work the brass more than we have to. We just want to work it and push it back enough where we have that, call it that margin of error, where if there is a little bit of debris in our chamber or on the case, like where the case just isn't so tight in the chamber that everything has to be perfect. Like we need to account for like this little tiny microscopic piece of grit and still be able to chamber things. So, um, you guys have different thoughts on how much you bump the shoulder back. I won't tell you what to do there. It's pretty minimal is all you need. And when you use that Hornady headspace comparator, what you can basically do is take the case before you size it, get a measurement, and then tweak your sizing die. So it's like, if I want to bump it, you know, so many thousands back, it's not measuring the overall length of the case. It's specifically looking at how are you bumping the shoulder portion specifically. Um, and so again, that's, that can be pretty important. I would recommend it um, to okay. make sure you're setting up the die correctly. You're not overworking the brass, but you're not underworking the brass and you're really sizing it the way you want to size it. Um, yeah, miscellaneous stuff like case blocks. So, you know, literally just something to hold your cases while you're working on them, resizing them, filling them with powder. Again, all the kits come with these, but if you're not buying a kit, you're going to need case blocks. You can get a universal one for $8. You can get a fancy billet aluminum one for $80. Again, (laughs) um, get an $8 one. Like that's fine. Um, yeah, I I mean, that's, that's, I know it's throwing, a heck of a lot out there i'll re kind of like restate my summary is like for you especially kyle knowing you i'm not telling what every listener should do but i'd say don't get a kit get a decent press good dies including a full-length sizer with a bushing and a cedar with micrometer get a good powder unit so kind of an all-in-one electric unit and then just get basics and everything else perfect what, uh, what questions or what did I skip or what, what comes to mind?
1: I mm, think pretty well covered everything. I, and like I said, from the beginning, I, I want to try to find that happy medium and, you know, limit myself from going too far and too deep into the weeds on it and just, you know, focus on what works, um, what's going to work best for me, what's going to be an effective use of my time and space that I have at home, just being a at home DIY guy. Yeah. So definitely really appreciate your approach to it and, you know how you look at things
0: yeah cool man yeah we can uh you know we can talk more about like okay we talked gear and kind of like the super high level process we actually didn't even touch on you know putting this together right so like where do you start how do you develop a load are you doing Seating depth testing or powder charge testing first, how are you picking what powder to try, you know, all that stuff. So um, we can definitely have a conversation uh, follow up and make that happen. But yeah, man, hopefully this is a good primer uh, to get you started. Hopefully it's been helpful for the listeners. Um, I'll kind of uh, in the show notes here just kind of reiterate and maybe throw some links out to, you know, high level stuff. Um, but yeah, if, uh, Kyle, you got any questions, I know you know this, but reach out anytime, but listeners, if you, um, have any questions, feel free to shoot us an email to podcast at xomonggear.com and I'll do my best to answer that. And again, it's, uh, I would say reloading, uh, is fun, man. Like in, in and of itself, it's, it's the same way, like for you, Kyle, of where it's really rewarding when you begin to see the differences downrange. range. So like for you building arrows, like you can go buy an arrow off the shelf, but when you start to understand the differences that can be made to ensure accuracy and precision and know that you're getting the best performance out of your bow with a custom arrow, it's the same thing, you know, with a rifle and then just like, there's something super cool, whether it's rifle, uh, in a cartridge or it's a bow and an arrow about, you know, like, going and killing an elk and being like, Oh yeah, I, I built that cartridge or, you know, I built that arrow. It's just kind of a, it's a fun thing. And it's always, for me, it's just always fun to learn new stuff. So I think it's enjoyable.
1: Absolutely. Very rewarding and huge confidence builder too. You know, when you just dive in, you know, you did it yourself and you just, you know, you understand the full process and you're just that much more intimately involved in everything that goes into it.
0: Well there you have it guys. Don't forget there is a link in the show description where you can check out an article that has more information about the specific gear that I would recommend as well as just a high level list of the gear categories you need to even get started. As always you can reach us directly by sending an email to podcast at xomountaingear.com and we will talk to you soon.